I wanted to start by telling you a story, um, quite a significant story in my life. Um, and it was when I engaged, I got engaged to my wife. Uh, so very significant, changed the entire thing. Whenever anybody gets engaged, I like asking that question. I'm not asking, when is the wedding? I like going, so what did you do? Because um, there's something about the extent that you go to for the person that you love. And things don't always go to plan, do they? And I remember planning this extravagant weekend where I was going to ask Toria to marry me. So I rang up where she was working at the time, spoke to her boss and said, I want to keep this a secret, but I want to come and pick her up while she's at work. I borrowed my boss's car because I didn't have a car. He was terrified I was going to write the thing off. And I traveled to Birmingham to pick up my wife, or my wife-to-be, my girlfriend at the time. <laughs> and um, I'd planned to go to Scotland, to Edinburgh. And the plan was we'd go there, we would go to Loch Lomond, have a great walk around this lock on the Saturday. We'd come back, I'd cook her a nice meal. We'd go off to the theater on Edinburgh High Street. Uh, and then I would, after the theater, we'd take a nice romantic stroll down the high street on Edinburgh. At this time of year, it was the 30th of November, actually. At this time of year, there's an ice rink. All the lights are out. It's Christmassy. And I'd take her down onto the ice rink, and I would propose to her. Didn't quite go to plan. We did get to Edinburgh, but I was pretty ill. And um, we found out the weather forecast was just appalling. So waking up the next day, it was pouring with rain. Just thought, oh, my word, here we are. My best laid plans have gone to pot. We ended up going up Arthur's seat instead, so we still got out on a rainy walk. I was pretty ill, so I went for a, a sleep, because I was like, I'm sorry, love, I'm, I'm going to have to go for a sleep. And um, it's a story of our lives, yeah. And <laughs> do you know, we got out to, I, we managed to cook a meal, got out to the, the theatre, had a great time at the theatre, got onto the high street, thought, OK, we can redeem this, you know? And we walk along the high street. My wife has got heels on. She doesn't often wear heels. And these heels specifically were causing her great agony, although I didn't know at the time. And so I was looking for this spot to get down onto the, uh, the ice rink. And we went down these steps to go to it. And it, it just, they were closing it off. They were like, sorry, you can't come down here. I was like, oh, no. My best laid plans have just totally gone again. So we walked on. I thought, there's got to be another spot down here to get down to the ice rink. So we kept walking down the high street, got to the very end of the high street. So I was like, I really need to get home, Chris. My feet are killing me. <laughs> so we started walking back, and I was thinking, where am I going to do this? I'm on the high street. There's loads of drunk people <laughs> on the street. Ah! You know, and I was like, oh, my word, there's no good spot. I ended up just going, right, OK, there's this little patch of grass. So we started looking over onto the ice rink, and I got down on one knee. The wind was blowing. There's some drunk guy just behind us. <laughs> I said, will you marry me? She couldn't hear a word I was saying because the wind and the drunk people on the street. I was, I was holding her face as well. So it was one of those, but this was a moment in history for us that totally changed our lives. This was a moment for us, but there are some moments in history I was thinking about that have been absolutely pivotal, culture-changing moments. A bit like... Um, the World Wars, World War I and II, absolutely culture-changing. Uh, things like 9-11, you know, that incident changed history and it changed our culture. The downing of the Berlin Wall was another massive moment in history. Martin Luther King's speech, I have a dream, 
was another massive moment in history. The reformation of the church and false doctrine, a massive moment in history. And this chapter that we are looking at, chapter 10 in Acts, I want to suggest is one such moment in history. Without this moment in chapter 10, many of us would not be sitting in this building today. Do you know, a few weeks ago, we looked at the gospel coming to the Samaritans, who are Jews who essentially have interbred with other nations of the world, and they were seen as dogs and unclean because they'd not kept themselves pure in their race. But this week, we're going to see another amazing story. It's not just one conversion. We're going to see two conversions happen today. But this is the first conversion of a Gentile, okay? And a Gentile... For those of you who don't know, is somebody who has no Jewish hereditary in their, in their blood at all. And this, for the Jewish race, would have been absolutely ridiculous to think that God could come to a Gentile. But this, I just want to say that this chapter, we are going to see that the gospel truly is unstoppable. It is a message that breaks down all barriers of race and culture. And we see this in this chapter so clearly. It's a massive, massive chapter. And it's a massive chapter because there's a huge story. Just as I've explained the story, the love story for us, this is a little bit of God's love story for his people. And he wants to make sure that we understand the significance and the importance of it. Okay, so we're going to read this. If you turn to chapter 10, we're going to break it into little chunks. And I'm just going to pick out some nuggets And then we're going to end by looking at the main theme of this entire chapter, what it's about. So, chapter 10, Cornelius calls for Peter. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius... Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. So this is how we're introduced to chapter 10. We're introduced firstly to this guy Cornelius, who is a centurion in the Roman army. And actually, in the New Testament, this isn't the first time we're introduced to a centurion with faith in the New Testament. Matthew 8, we have that encounter with Jesus, don't we? This centurion approaches Jesus, and he asks him to heal one of his servants. And Jesus offers to come to his house and to make uh, them well. But the centurion replies, he says, Lord, I do not deserve you to have you come under my roof, but just say the words, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus, he comments about this centurion that his faith is unlike any that he's seen. His faith is uh, is unlike any that he's seen. And just to say, these are... Skilled fighters, you see this guy, he looks pretty mean, doesn't he? And they're ruling 
territories there, trying to keep them in check. And they would have definitely have been expected to worship Roman gods. But what we're finding out is that it's not just Cornelius. There are other centurions who have witnessed something about Jesus. And Yahweh, that's caused them to put their faith in him. And we have this Gentile who was devout and God-fearing towards Yahweh. And although things like entry to the synagogue or even the opportunity to learn about who Yahweh is would have been limited, we find out about Cornelius that he doesn't just pray regularly to Yahweh, but he gives generously to those in need. He's obviously caught some of Yahweh's heart on what he's after. And we read that an angel appears to him in a vision. And I like this because the nice thing is, even though he's this trained warrior, he's still afraid like the rest of us would be because he's witnessing something supernatural. It makes him scared. And the angel gives him this clear instruction to do what to do next. Go fetch Simon Peter from Simon the Tanner's house who lives by the sea in Joppa. You couldn't really make this up. You know, here we've got two Simons. Does it get any more complex than that? Go fetch Simon Peter, who's at Simon the Tanner's house. And, do you know, without a second thought, he gathers a couple of his men, and he sends them out to Joppa, which is 35 miles away, to go and do what the angel, angel has told him what to do. And as God's setting the scene for what's about to happen, he's chosen a prominent well-known, respected man to bring about his heart for this radical message that's about to be outworked. But this man would have been seen as an enemy to the Jews, a ruling power who they felt were being, they were being oppressed by, a so-called enemy of God. And this is who God chooses to use to bring this message through. So, meanwhile, we move to Peter, Okay, this story dips in and out because it's quite complex. Peter is, as we know, he is the chief disciple uh, of such. And he has just been in chapter 9. He's just raised Tabitha from the dead. Okay, and we keep getting told that he is staying with Simon the Tanner. So we're just going to read a little bit here, verses 9 through to 22. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the roof to pray. He became hungry and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon... Three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, 
I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous, God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Now, some of the rules and regulations for the Jews meant they were not able to enter an unclean house. And a Gentile, for them, is definitely an unclean house. And later on in this chapter, we're going to see that Peter's very clear with them. He tells them, you understand, I should not be entering this house. He says, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But throughout this chapter, I love this chapter because there's so much in it. And throughout this chapter, it feels like Luke is making clear to us some of the irony or the hypocrisy uh, of this situation. It's almost like he's having a laugh. Um, And these details often go by us. So I'm going to try and point them out as we go through. But lots of what's being said in this chapter is not incidental. The chapter is full of details that confirm the overall message of this chapter. So we find out he's staying at a tanner's house. Now, because we don't really have tanners in this culture, you think, what is a tanner? What does a tanner do? Well, a tanner is someone who deals with leather. So they're dealing with animals. And they're taking the animal hide and they're taking it off the carcasses. And they dye those hides. Okay? So Simon the tanner's house, where Peter is staying, is literally a really, it would have been a really dirty house. Okay? It would have been pretty unclean. It would have been a job, being a tanner, that I say probably no Jews, unless you were economically had no other options, as a Jew you probably would not have chosen to have done this job. Because it goes against some of the things, uh, some of the Levitical law. But what's interesting is we find out that God chooses this exact point to speak to Peter on the issue of clean and unclean. And for me, as I look at this passage, I start to see some of God's humour coming through. Okay? He's orchestrated this. So here we are. It says Peter's at noon. So he's here at lunchtime. And he goes up on the roof. And it feels a little bit like, I don't know if you've ever been at prayer days or a prayer and fasting day. All of the words that come to the front are all about some sort of food. Because everyone's starving. So here, here's Peter. He's famished. It's lunchtime. And he goes up onto the roof, and surprise, surprise, he gets this vision. And it's a vision of this blanket that keeps coming down with food on animals that are not supposed to be eaten. And this is because in Jewish Levitical law, there were all sorts of animals that you couldn't touch or eat. And so as God speaks to Peter, and he asks him to kill and eat, this was a massively challenging thing for God to say to Peter and for him to understand. And I love Peter because when I look at him, I'm so encouraged that we still actually see him being a a bit of an idiot. He's trying to argue with God. And it's nothing new, actually, because Peter did this quite regularly, didn't he? If we look back in Scripture, we see when Jesus declared to the disciples that he must die, Peter declares, never on his watch. It's not going to happen. And Jesus says to me, get behind me, Satan. 
When Jesus said to his disciples, I want to wash your feet, guys, Peter argued and said, not me, you can't do this, Lord. When Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room that they were going to desert him, Peter was so adamant, oh, not me, Lord, maybe all of them, yeah, I can see that, but not me, come on, this is, this is Peter, I'm the rock. And here we see Peter has not changed in some ways. He's not learnt the lesson. Surely not, Lord, he replies. And then God says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And you know, God's not really talking about food. That's not the point of this message. But some interesting things. This happens three times, doesn't it? Happens three times, and that detail's important. Three's quite a significant number for Peter. When we're talking about him, three times he denies Jesus. Three times he gets restored by Jesus on the beach when he says, do you love me? And it takes three times here for Peter to stop arguing with God on the issue of clean and unclean. And I just love the vulnerability of the Bible, don't you? It doesn't hide the faults. Peter the Rock is this fairly stubborn guy. He's self-assured and... Maybe he's a bit of a slow learner. And yet God wants to use him powerfully in establishing the foundations of his young church. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that give you faith? Faith that he wants to use us? Because we can all be a bit stubborn. Some more than others. I'm fairly stubborn. My wife will tell you. But these unclean animals, in Peter's vision, were not just about food laws that applied to the Jewish race. God was trying to bring a revelation to Peter, that whatever or whoever, more importantly, he called clean, was no longer to be seen as unclean. And we can see from Peter's reaction that this was an absolute culture shock for him to get his head around. God is trying to unpick the law for him. Those have-tos, those traditions of being circumcised or abiding by certain laws, the law has now been fully satisfied through Christ Jesus. And sacrifices and circumcision were no longer to be required to become one of God's children. Because God had sacrificed himself, hadn't he? He had washed clean the sins of not just the Jewish race, but of mankind. And at this point here, for Peter, I think it feels a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, Peter can see some of the picture of what God's starting to say to him, and yet he can't quite see the big picture. He can't quite figure out what God is really getting at. It's a little bit like one of those, do you remember those, it was in the 90s, those magic eye paintings, yeah? And everyone's looking at it going, can you see this? And you had to sort of look through the picture. And I'm looking at it going, all I can see is mess. And I, and I get the feeling this was what Peter was feeling. Okay, I've seen something but I've really got no idea what I'm actually seeing. What does it mean? And so then we get this knock at the door, don't we? While Peter was still thinking about the vision, he's still thinking, pondering, going, what on earth does this mean? The spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up, go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. In some versions it says, without hesitation, but I love the fact that Peter still, 
as we look at him. He still asks them, what do you want? What do you want? What are you here for? And he doesn't immediately get up and go. He invites them in. They stay overnight and they go the next day. It's like there's no urgency. We've got this contrast with Cornelius, this godly man who, yep, get up and go. Peter, hold on, come and tell me what's going on. I'm not going anywhere until we've had a conversation. And um, it says the following day he arrives in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them. And he'd called them together. I'm just going to skip some of the verses as we go along. He called, he called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Did you? I'm not sure. <clears throat> May I ask why you sent for me? I'm being harsh, am I? There's actually something about Luke here. He's writing from a perspective about Peter. You'll notice through Acts, his slant is actually much more towards Paul than to Peter. But that's, that's just another thing there. So we find out Cornelius, Cornelius replays this story of the fact of, uh, that an angel appears to him in his own house and instructs him to, set, to fetch Simon Peter from Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa by the sea. Verse 34 says, Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And he goes on, we're not going to read this, but he goes on to tell them the gospel. This is Peter now proclaiming the gospel to them. And he proclaims Jesus' death and resurrection to them. And as he's telling this, it says, verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they had heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I can't express more. This moment is a turning point in history. It opens wide the gospel, gospel to all the nations of the earth. No longer is this message, this relationship, one of a special chosen people group. No. God created mankind. And actually his heart has always been for the whole of mankind, to know him and to enjoy him. And I love the fact that we're seeing God orchestrating the events of this chapter with such eloquence. His timing is impeccable. And the way he does it leaves no doubt of the message that he's conveying. Some of the things that happen are so key in this passage. So we find out that an angel comes to Cornelius' house. And that's important because it shows that God has entered the house. This isn't just about Peter entering a house. God first entered Cornelius' house. The angel entered his house. 
showing he's no longer unclean. To the way that God speaks to both Cornelius and Peter. This is to back up. Often if we get a word ourselves and we are pondering on it and going, Lord, what are you saying? Obviously we want to measure it, make sure it weighs up with scripture. Yeah? Here, this point is so important, God knows he wants to bring together two people's accounts of God bringing them together in such an amazing way. The fact that we have witnesses. You needed two or three witnesses to witness something in those days. And there's witnesses, not just, there's not just Peter. He brings with him some of the Christians from the church in Joppa. There's witnesses from the church. There's witnesses because there's Cornelius and all of his relatives and friends. There's witnesses, Jewish witnesses, Gentile witnesses at this event. And the fact that the Holy Spirit is visibly poured out on the Gentiles in front of Simon and the other Jews, and he declares this to be another Pentecost. This is similar to the Pentecost. Even the language that we get, notice he says he's poured out. It's exactly the same language. It's not that the Gentiles are getting a little, a little drip of the Spirit. He's poured out on the Gentiles. And they start speaking in tongues. Now, honestly, without this story, without this event happening, we would not be meeting today as God's bride. That's how significant this chapter is in Acts. And yet, even more remarkably, this message has not come out of the blue. This isn't a big surprise. God's heart for the Gentiles has been seen throughout scriptures. In fact, eight centuries earlier, God called another prophet to bring his good news to a Gentile nation. What's more interesting is that eight centuries ago, that same prophet was standing in a little town in Joppa by the sea, waiting to board a ship. And this prophet was reluctant to say the least. This prophet could not stand the thought of a Gentile nation receiving anything from his God, Yahweh. He was disgusted at the thought and he decided to run. I don't know if you know this, but Simon means son of John or son of Jonah. And yes, eight centuries earlier, Jonah was in Joppa boarding a ship, having been called by God to bring good news to a Gentile nation. Does that not blow your mind? This chapter, honestly, I am baffled and amazed all at the same time as I see God's sense of humor in this and also just the way he's beautifully orchestrated out his story and his will for planet Earth. Isaiah 49 says this, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus' mission. There it is, hundreds of years earlier, that this light is for the Gentiles. We were never an afterthought or plan B 
It wasn't that the Jewish race just kept messing this up and so God thought, you know what, they've had it. I'm going to take this to the Gentiles. We Gentiles were always part of God's plan. And God went to great lengths to outwork this plan. So often, our vision is just way too small. And had it been up to Jonah the prophets, or even Peter the apostle, they would have limited the gospel to a tiny group of people. And this point in the early church's life was absolutely crucial. There was a spiritual battle going on. And Satan was doing everything that he could to stop the spread of the gospel. He used fear and intimidation to try and stop the disciples from ever leaving the upper room. He used religious leaders and specifically men with power from outside the church to kill and destroy and stamp out this faith. But you know what? God used that for his glory. And it was the scattering of the Jews that caused the gospel to spread. Last week we heard how he turned Saul on the road to Damascus. And he brought him into relationship with him because he was destined to be an instrument for the gospel and not for destruction of the church. But now here in chapter 10, the battle doesn't come from outside the church, it comes from within the church. The Jewish Christians themselves were resistant to change. You read it in chapter 11 as Paul gets back to the Jewish church. They were limiting the scope of the gospel and who it was for. Legalism and heritage were their rocks, their cornerstones, their identity. They felt special and they didn't want that to change. And I want to say the same challenge is here for us today as Freedom Church. Phil Moore says this, so Satan has only one option left to prevent you from wreaking massive damage on his kingdom. He must make you short-sighted and trick you into limiting the scope of your ministry for Christ. If he can restrict your gaze to Sundays, he will. If he can turn it into private religion or even corporate church religion, he will do that too. If he can dupe you into ring-fencing your faith away from your work colleagues, your relatives, your neighbours, or any of the many people groups in your nation, he still hopes to. This is it, guys. Every limit, restriction, barricade of Satan must be broken down for the sake of Jesus' gospel. And I know when it comes to the church and we look historically, actually, we've got a lot to answer for. We've shown great hostility and judgment on many different groups in our society. And I want to say we must keep working hard at recognising the reach of the gospel. The church must open its doors to all. To the drug addicts, to the ex-prisoners, to those struggling with sexuality or gender, to refugees, those from other races, to the paedophiles, to the drug-dealing gangs in Liverpool. Why? Because the gospel is good news for all. Now, I just want to say that doesn't mean we neglect the safety of the flock. It doesn't mean we actually agree or condone the way people are living their lives as they come 
into the church, but it does mean we need to welcome all and love all. I remember in our old church, we, in Leeds, we, there was one day, this guy turns up at the church and he's a cross-dresser, obviously. He's actually a guy struggling with his gender. And he turns up in a skirt and he's an alcoholic and he's got full-on stubble. And it was just really interesting to see how the church responded to this guy coming through the doors. Because what ends up happening is if you are unsure of someone, if you don't know how to handle them and you don't know how to speak to them, we end up avoiding them. We end up giving them a wide berth. And I remember us making a really clear choice, my wife and I, and we used to pick him up every week in our car with our daughter at the time, who was a young two-year-old, and we used to pick him up and we used to bring him to church because he lived in our area. And there was a challenge going on in my heart, I have to say, at the time of just trying to love this guy with all the issues that he's struggling with and yet wanting to see the gospel at work in this man's life. And so I want to end by saying let's, let's not limit the scope of the gospel by being prejudiced towards different people groups. This is where we need the spirit. This is where this gospel community, this family that we talk about shows that it is a family, shows that it is a loving community. And honestly, just from a practical perspective, you don't know what to say, go say hi, okay? That's as good as anything. Just go and say hi. And the impact that that will have on someone is massive. It just helps them feel welcomed and settled. But I also want to say, let's not limit the scope of the gospel to those that actually we may feel the gospel's not going to impact. Okay? I love the story today by Barb's just this prayer for this guy that she thought there's no hope for. And it is just the power of God at work in his life. So to conclude, I started by telling you about how I got engaged to my wife. It was an elaborate plan that didn't really go to plan. But this morning, this chapter that we're reading about is God's elaborate plan. His love story being worked out to perfection. He's orchestrated it from the beginning of time. And we Gentiles get the privilege of being called his son or daughter. And you know, it's quite overwhelming. His desire for you to know him and experience him through the power of his spirit. And this morning... We're going to be doing communion in a little while. This is about a celebration. First and foremost, this is about a celebration that we have access to our Creator God. That He died. His blood was shed. He took on the full wrath and anger of God for you and I so that we could know Him. So that we could have Him dwell in us. This is life-changing. This affects your absolute hope, eternity, forever and ever and ever because of what he's done, because of his love for you. And as well as celebration this morning, I think there's this sense of just reflection. 
Where are we limiting God in his gospel in our lives and in those around us? Have we got prejudices towards others that God wants to remove? Have we got too small a view of what God wants to do as he promises a kingdom, a multitude of people from every tribe, tongue and nation that will bow down to him? God wants to open our eyes that the gospel is absolutely unstoppable. He wants to break down any barriers, stopping us or limiting our expectations of what we can do in and through 